And I uh, hope you got a Bible with you tonight. We're in John 11. Uh, John 11, we're going to begin down around verse 45. Uh, as we read the story of Lazarus last week and going to pick up at the end of this chapter um, this week. I might have mistaken and said we was going to be in John 12 tonight. We will be in John 12, but we're going to kind of begin at the end of John 11 um, and then get into the beginning of John 12. Let me just say this um, up front. These John sermons and John messages tend to be a little challenging, um, but uh, I didn't write the book, so uh, um, <laughs> I'm just a messenger. Um, these are incredibly rich and just, uh, I'll probably say this again later on the message, every chapter in John is just overflowing with just awesome, awesome, awesome uh, uh, truth from God. Sometimes it's very convicting. It's very challenging. Um, and uh, I, I tell you this because I, I just want to say this up front. I've, I've probably presented the, 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 the conversation in this message before um, in a previous tech message around this chapter, around this text. But I want to just say this, that I, I found that the most convicting truth from God, the most convicting messages from God, usually offer the most hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, the hardest things for me to receive from God are usually the ones that offer me the most hope and the most help when I actually take them. Um, so I say this because, man, I didn't want to do this. I want to just move on to chapter 12. This is so convicting. It's so challenging for me as just as a Christian, as a stubborn person um, who wants things to do, go the way I want them to go and, and, and so forth. It's challenging. It's very difficult. But, but I believe, I believe, I believe that uh, God's always right. And his word is always helpful. So with that being said, tonight's text and message really complements our series theme as a whole. Theme series, the title of this study has been called Undeniable. Of course, the theme and our title are all inspired by John's gospel. I didn't just come up with that out of the blue, right? John's gospel, I think, presents this idea, this message, that, uh, that this idea that Jesus is undeniably um, from God. Uh, of course, um, our theme, we believe, um, has been and is John's theme from the beginning of the book, throughout the book. If you get to know Jesus like he knows Jesus, I think John would be saying to us. John would say, if you were to ask him in heaven right now, hey, why'd you write John? Why'd you write the gospel? Why'd you tell the story like you did in the order that you did? Um, John would say, if you get to know Jesus like I got to know Jesus, like I know Jesus, if you understand Jesus like he presented himself throughout this book, John says it will become undeniably clear, undeniably clear that Jesus is the Son of God the Savior of the whole, whole world. Now, that's, that's big, right? That's a big claim to make. I mean, John's writing a little tiny book that's gonna, in the first century that's going to just be put out there. John doesn't know who's going to read it, how many people are going to read it, how often it's going to be read, how many copies are going to be made. John's writing one copy. He's in the church at Ephesus. He's going to send it out to around the churches. He doesn't know what's going to happen to it. I'm sure God might have gave him a little insight about what the big picture was all about, but who knows? I don't know. I wasn't there, right? I'm sure, clearly, I'm not a inspired as these guys. So I don't know what John had in mind, but John would confidently say, I knew when I shut the book, I knew when I finished the last page that it is undeniably clear based on the revelation that God has given us in this text that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the whole world. John, remember, he closes the book. We've already peeked and read the end where John says, I've written all this down so that you will believe that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God and that you would have life in his name. It's all on record for that reason. Now, John has told us stories that emphatically present Jesus as the Word of God made flesh, the favor of God made free, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of 
all of the world. And we've learned that Jesus is a new platform that we can stand on and, and, and climb up on and get to God through. He's, in, he's the new wine that brings us the, 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 the true heart of God. He's the new bread that gives that quenches our hunger and, 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 and brings us the, the Word of God. He's the new fount of everlasting life. So every chapter in John has been this megaphone from heaven declaring that Jesus is undeniably from God, God in a body. And it's just been building up chapter after chapter. Jesus finally in John 10 said, I and the Father are one. If you know me, you know the Father. You hear the Father. And the text we've, we're moving into tonight is so powerful. It's so powerful. And, it, and, and here's really the, kind of the, the back, background of it. This text is so powerful because it actually highlights that Jesus had made such an impact that it actually begins to tell us that Jesus' very enemies were starting to surrender to his true identity. Not that they personally accepted him, but they got to the point where they could no longer deny that he was indeed a man from God because he couldn't do the things he was doing if he wasn't. That's pretty, pretty incredible, right? His own enemies were at the point of saying, we can't fight this anymore, we can't stop it, we don't want to accept him. We're not ready to follow him. Some of them were, but most of them weren't. We can't deny anymore. And again, to be clear, their response wasn't to embrace Jesus, but rather try to erase him from history. So this meeting that we're going to read out tonight, it begins by a bunch of men who are panicking. It's over, Rover. We're done for. He's going to win the whole world. And then one of them says, I've got a plan. We're not going to have to, we don't have to surrender to him. We don't have to fight him. We don't have to embrace him. We are just going to simply erase him from history. And years from now, no one will remember who Jesus is, but they'll all remember our names. <laughs> now, here's the thing. The passage we're going to read shouldn't have been in the Bible. Now, clearly it is, but God intended it. If it was up to the men who are on the record in this text, they would have never approved it of being in this gospel. They didn't pass the notes of this meeting along to John and say, yeah, you should include this in your book. It would be incredible resources for you. They didn't want this to be on the record. They intended it to be off the record. They would have flipped had they known John included this in his story. But one of the people in the scenes at the close of John 11, perhaps a few of them, actually went rogue and told John everything that was said. And thank God they did, because it serves to drive home John's message even more. Almost as if the whole thing was inspired. Huh? But the scene in John 11, if you didn't already guess, it's the religious leaders who have locked horns with Jesus. We've read about them over and over again, trying to, to, to say Jesus is not of God, trying to say he has a demon, trying to say he's a blasphemer. They've locked horns with him over and over again. They excommunicated him from the temple grounds in John 9. They've had enough of him. You'd think they let him do his own thing. I mean, they've already declared him a heretic. They've already locked him away from the temple mount after what he did in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery, after what he did with the guy who was born blind in John 9, after he said in John 10 that he, they were thieves and robbers and he was the good shepherd and he was from God. But you'd think they would just say, this guy's loony. He's crazy. We're not going to talk to him anymore. We're just going to pretend he doesn't exist. But what happens in John 11 rocks the landscape of Judaism in Jerusalem so violently that they couldn't ignore it. 
John 11 is so big, so foundational shifting, they had to address it. Now, you know what happens in John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave. And John wants to really build up that story. He says, hey, this guy had been dead for four days. They rolled the stone away. They took the grave clothes off of him because he was dead, right? He was dead, forgotten about, moved on from. But they got him out of the grave. He walked out alive, and it shook the land. They might could spend the healings and the lesser miracles and some hocus pocus pocus light but there was no denying what happened in John 11 see they all knew that resurrection power was undeniable proof that Jesus was from God perhaps Jesus was indeed God somehow some way however that would work here's what the response is John 11 verse 45 then after the miracle many of the Jews so many of the Jewish leader, religious people, people in, the, in and around the temple, many of the Jews who had come to Mary heard the story that was being told and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. Now remember, they showed up to try to mock Jesus. Remember, they were showing up, oh, he couldn't heal him. He must have been powerless. Why would he show up four days late and roll a stone away and make it smell really bad? He was crying because he couldn't do it. They showed up to try to make a fool out of Jesus, and Jesus made believers out of all of them. It was undeniable. So many of them believed, but verse 46 says, but some of them, because there's always these, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Now, see, the Pharisees couldn't show up and see for themselves because they had just declared Jesus unclean in John 9. So they couldn't go and see him because if they got in his vicinity, they would be considered unclean too because it was proximity, right? If you got near someone who was dirty, you got dirty too. So they had to stay away, but they sent their moles, right? And said, hey, you go check on what's going on down there at Bethany. They come back and they say, whoa, he just raised a dead man from the grave because dead people are in graves. He just raised Lazarus of Bethany from the dead. There was no spinning, no winning this war they had declared on Jesus. Now let me say this. The reason they had declared war on Jesus wasn't that he came preaching from a different Bible. He quotes the same Old Testament they all knew from heart. They went to the same Torah school as Jesus. They knew Jesus since he was a little boy. They didn't reject Jesus because he come preaching, came preaching a different Bible. They didn't reject, reject Jesus because he came pointing to a different God than their own. Jesus and the Pharisees and the religious leaders all believed in the same God, read the same Bible, and believed the exact same things about God. Their theology was 99.99% the same. So why did they reject him? It comes down to this. It comes down to a situation between expectation versus fulfillment. You see, the religious leaders had been waiting for the fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies and promises for a long, long time. They had dreamed up and imagined. They had prayed for the realization of all that was predicted. But here's what happened, and it's so subtle, and I think we've all been here, and we're all right here in even our own Christian lives in different ways. It's so subtle, and we're, if, it, if we're not careful, it can happen to us. It's happened to me, and it probably has happened to you. Instead of allowing, instead of allowing God in his word to be in control, they slowly assumed control. Let me explain. They had been so invested, they were so invested in thinking up how it was all going to happen. 
They read the Old Testament cover to cover. They could memorize the first five books of Moses. They could quote the book of Isaiah. They knew all the prophecies. They knew all the promises. They knew it all. They were so invested in realizing it or dreaming it up and thinking about how it's going to be fulfilled. Their expectations were so ironed out, were so defined, were so detailed. They had their own idea. They had it all figured out how God was going to show up, how God was going to do what he had promised to do. So when he actually showed up and began to do it a little different than they expected, they weren't willing to let go of their expectations to receive God's fulfillment. You hear that? They read, they interpreted, they expected. After years of waiting, they were convinced. They had everything figured out. They were more invested and more interested in being right than they were with witnessing whatever God was actually going to do. And it wasn't that he was going to contradict his word. It was just that they didn't have the market on how it was going to happen. Here's what I know. God's made some promises to you as a Christian, to us as a church, God's word says things about your personal life, your professional life, your private life, your, your spiritual God's word has something to say about every aspect of your life. And sometimes we get so invested on thinking how it's going to be realized to us, we aren't open to how God actually wants to make it realized. You hear that? We aren't willing to receive what God wants to do because we've already decided what God's going to do. Today's church, of course, can't relate to that, can we? Now, of course we can. It's like how we interpret how the church should be based on our view of Scripture. It's like how we interpret politics based on our view of Scripture. We do that, don't we? It, we all interpret the end times based on our view of Scripture. And believe me, there's going to be a lot of people when we get to heaven, and we're going to have our charts and our books and our ideas that, well, Jesus, this didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen. And I read Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation a hundred times. And he's going to say, and I wrote it. I mean, hey, you know, I, I know you studied it very hard, but you kept making that same mistake. We all get so invested in how we think it's going to happen. We do this in our personal lives, don't we? Right? We pray for thy will to be done. We pray for your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then we get so invested in how we want it to be done. God's trying to say, hey, this is what I want to do. But you've already got your mind made up. And I know your lips say your will and your kingdom, but your heart is saying no, no, no. Now, we get upset, we get bent, we get mad when things don't jive with what we expected. We don't accept God's way, and which is based on God's word, and it's really like we're not accepting God. Now, because behind his word, behind his way is him, we, I, have been right here with these guys. So it's easy to pick on them, but hey, I've been there. I bet you've been there. I'm not picking on anybody. Believe me, this flies in my face big time. But I'm saying this because I've seen myself crossing this line so many times. So may we never, may we never become so passionate about our expectation that we reject God's fulfillment if and however different it may be. Now, of course, God's never going to contradict his word. Again, I'm not saying that. But our flesh will convince us that we've got it all figured out in a minute. And we might be way off base. As was the case for the religious leaders, and thus why they declared war on Jesus. And they found themselves at odds with God, resisting the God they claimed and believed themselves to represent. That's why this got really messy for them. They were convinced they had it right. And listen, 
and I, maybe not you, because y'all are smarter than me and, and, and more spiritual than me, I'm mostly. But listen, if I would have been in synagogue in the first century Jerusalem, in Judea, I probably would have been quoting the Bible saying, Jesus can't be it. He can't be the Messiah. It just doesn't work. This isn't how we believe it's going to be. And we would be so, you know, so galvanized in how we've believed it to be done. We represent God. I mean, how can we be wrong? They found themselves at odds with God, resisting the God they claimed and believed to be representing. And again, Christians, Christians, can't we relate? We often resist the God we say we trust. We've all had this internal battle, haven't we, where God's will is clearly moving us in one direction, but we don't want to move. We know we should, or we know we shouldn't. We know we should start. We know we should stop. We know we should go. We know we should leave. We know we should give. We know we should be more faithful, whatever it may be. And you know what outsiders call people that resist the God that they say they trust? Hypocrites, right? But it's difficult to surrender to a God you've never seen. I get that especially one who is so good to us no matter what. But the call over our life is still the same as it was to those at this meeting where they began plotting and planning, plotting and planning a way to erase Jesus from history. And here's what we're gonna, where we're going with this, with this tonight. The irony of this story, it's so powerful, proving true what they even confess among themselves. Jesus was undeniably God. They even say he's unstoppable. And again, the irony of it all is their attempt to erase Jesus from history inadvertently is the reason why history remembers Jesus so well. Do you get that? Their attempt to wipe him off the pages of history is the reason why he's all over the pages of history. Their resistance to God is the reason why God has gotten so much attention ever since. Their attempt to erase is the reason why he's more alive than ever. These guys' story of resistance actually illustrates the futility in resisting God. I think all of our stories actually do that. And for us Christians, we know it doesn't make any sense to resist God, but we still do it, and our stumbling illustrates to those around us how futile it is to resist him. Look at verse 47 as the meeting begins. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. It's obvious who he is. It's obvious that we can't stop him. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're panicking, aren't they? He's unstoppable. He's clearly from God. He's on a tear. And if we let him alone, as in if we don't stop him, like you're able to stop a man who literally could raise someone from the grave. But hey, let's try. If we don't stop him, Rome's going to come in and they're going to mess up this sweet deal we've got. And aha, now we see what actually is the problem. They know they bet on the wrong horse. They know the solution is to swallow their pride, confess that they're wrong, or just accept it's over for them. And know this, the Jewish leaders had a sweet deal with Rome. They wouldn't rock the boat, and Rome wouldn't divert the waters. Rome said, hey, listen, you guys, as long as y'all send us some money, and as long as y'all behave, we'll protect your dynasty of your religion. As long as y'all don't rock your boat, we'll make sure the water keeps flowing, and we'll make sure that it doesn't overflow, and we won't stop it from coming. So now we see why 
even though they expected a Messiah, even though they prayed for a Messiah, they were really more concerned about riding it out as easy as they could. They really didn't need a Messiah. They had life pretty good, for the religious leaders, that is. Oh, we believe God's going to move. We want God to move, but we really don't want to move if it's going to cost us comfort or our security. Now the picture's more clear, isn't it? They had a vested interest in rejecting any Messiah, especially the real one, because even the mighty religious leaders doubted that God's fulfillment could stand against Rome. Do you hear, do you hear that? Could you hear them actually saying that? Well, yeah, the Old Testament says God's going to bring a kingdom and the lion's going to lay with the lamb and Israel's going to be the capital of the world. But have you seen Rome lately? Have you seen them crucify people lately? I mean, even if God brought a Messiah to us, we don't know if Rome can be stopped. Seriously? Isn't this us more than ever? I mean, God, we believe, we trust, we have no fear, but oh no, the wrong guy got elected. Hello? Oh no, the wrong party's in control. Oh no, our culture is so corrupt. Oh no, they're going to take away this. Oh no, they're going to come and try to hurt us. Oh no, the economy and the terrorists and the changes. Oh no, what are we going to do? Oh, but we believe, God. We believe. But God, we're actually not really sure you can help this situation. Unless this thing goes the way we think it should go, unless this guy wins, or unless that thing passes, or unless this thing changes. This is where. This is where genuine, fearless, boundless, and limitless faith is either expressed or we are exposed as frauds. Our nation, our place, are you kidding? It wasn't theirs. Why did they have it in the beginning? They knew to resist Jesus was to resist God. They could tell that God was undeniably with him. They were worried about what it might cost them. Even though they didn't own the land or the nation to begin with, still it does confirm that yes, putting Jesus first will indeed cost us, but what if the gain is so much more rewarding? But alas, Superman was about to speak. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You're worrying for nothing. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. He's got a plan. Well, who is this guy? Joseph Caiaphas, high priest from year 18 to 36 AD. His family controlled the temple for 40 years. It was a dynasty. They had so much money. The religious headquarters in the scene was so wealthy. The temple taxes, the Jews had, in, had to deal with the Romans. It poured so much money from around the world. Caiaphas had so much power, so much influence, and he had it made until, until Jesus began drawing people away from the temple what started with John the Baptist now overflowed around Jesus, crescendoing with this energy around Jesus after Lazarus was resurrected. Rome was worried about crowds. Caiaphas was worried about crowds. Jesus was so popular. Caiaphas put up with him, but no one, would res no one respected or were amazed, was amazed by what he said. He was a necessary evil. No one really cared about him, but Jesus, man, everybody loved him. He was jealous. 
And Jesus spoke, people were astonished at the authority he spoke with, that people acknowledged him having it from God. And Jesus criticized the religious leaders up and down. Caiaphas had his full of Jesus. His operation was crumbling from, from beneath him. It built and it built in the crowds, the humiliation of the religious leaders in the face of all their questions. The camel's back was broken. They needed a new strategy. If they were going to stop Jesus, his authority was not just through sermons anymore, but through signs. He turned water to wine. He spoke the word and a young boy was healed. He healed a man that had been waiting on religion to help him and attempted for decades to get to a pool of water, but Jesus brought him back to his feet. He fed 5,000. He preached a message to people who brought, blind, brought the blind man back his sight. He stood up for an adulterous woman. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He declared loud and clear that he was the resurrection and the life. If you wanted to come to the Father, you had to come through him. He declared that he wasn't just there to prevent them from sinning, but he was there to resurrect them from the grave. And now, it wasn't just Jesus' words against theirs anymore. It was his work and power over and above theirs. People weren't buying what the religious people were selling anymore because Jesus showed up and was giving it away for free. He came to change everything, even if it meant making some things uncertain for a while because the one thing he was making certain was far more important and far more pressing. Caiaphas couldn't imagine his power going away, even if, he could, even if it could mean his sin being washed away, his life being changed for the better. He wasn't willing to let go of his power and possessions from Rome. Can you imagine that? But are we much different? He couldn't imagine counting the cost. He couldn't bear it. He says to his council, don't worry, we're not going to suffer loss at all. No, my plan involves only one loss. Forget the tricks. Forget the debates. It's going to require death. And if we get rid of him, if we get rid of him, the nation will be better off. It'll protect our future if we remove Jesus from the equation. And John, with a grin, editorializes in verse 51. Now this he did not say of his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. John's got his tongue in his cheek, and he's saying, Caiaphas didn't even know he was actually being prophetic that one man would indeed die for the rest. Verse 52 says, and not only for the nation, not for the nation only, but also for he would gather together and won the children of God who were scattered around the world. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. They plotted. They plotted to kill Jesus, but as they resisted him, they actually facilitated God's will because his death actually multiplied the movement. Come on, at the end of the day, if we resist, we only illustrate how futile it is to resist God's will. It may be too much for us, but it'll end up showing people how foolish it is to resist God's will, and it will only reflect the truth and glory of God. John had to be grinning from ear to ear. They thought they could take his life because what did Jesus say before this? I will lay my life down and nobody will take it from me, and I'll take it back. Again, John had to grin as he reflect on their scheming. God hears and sees our plotting and our planning, leaving him out, and he grins. He's seen this before. We're foolish to do such. 
Verse 54 says, Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. He remained there with his disciples. And the Passover the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command, If anyone knew where he was, he should report it, and that they might seize him. Keep that in mind. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, had been, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Mary, Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those at the table. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragment of oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. And here enters the scene. Judas Iscariot, hypocrite extraordinaire. He wanted to believe that Jesus was going to butter his bread and advance his cause, but this was turning in a direction he didn't sign up for. He wasn't in this to help nobody but himself, so Judas came back into town and saw the wanted posters, heard the reports of bribes and offers on the table. He went to Caiaphas and said, I'm ready to talk. And working with Judas, he had so many, he had so many sermons, he twisted around having Jesus... Uh, uh, pinned as this a traitor trying to cause a rebellion against Rome. Caiaphas went hard to work to present Jesus as a threat to Rome. He pegged Jesus with this charge of sedition because he claimed to be a king. Jesus sent from the, sent, was sent from the Sanhedrin to both Pilate and Herod upon his arrest. He was cross-examined, sent back and forth until finally Pilate decided his fate. Pilate thought Jesus was a joke. He was insulted by his claims, but he felt sorry for him. He told the religious leaders he's no threat to anybody. He tried to walk, talk Caiaphas out of wanting to kill him, but he and his man were so against Jesus. At this point, they didn't even know why. They didn't even care. They just wanted him dead. Luke tells us they were urgent, demanding with loud cries he should be crucified. Their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand, because it was all up to them, right? Their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for, that, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Because again, this is all their plan, isn't it? And so... Jesus was crucified. And the high priest and the council rejoiced, but two of their own resigned that Friday. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They didn't consent. They went rogue. And maybe that's how John got the minutes of this meeting. Caiaphas didn't care. Jesus was gone. Nick and Joe would be the ones that would look like fools when everyone had forgotten who Jesus was in just a few short weeks. Their positions were secured. The movement was over. But then on the first day of the Passover, the religious headquarters was in a frenzy. Reports came that Jesus' body was missing. And not only that, over the next 40 days, people began to see Jesus everywhere. He was here. He was there. The hundreds of people said, we've seen him. He's alive. 
And over the next month, the street was filled with people preaching in his name. And all of a sudden, the wind of God filled the city. It was like his spirit was inside of everyone who believed. The movement hadn't ended. It had only began. Within just a few short years, Judas had killed himself in shame. Caiaphas lost his place in Jerusalem was destroyed. And you only know their story because it's a footnote in the history of Jesus. There's a little Caiaphas in all of us. There's a little Judas in all of us that says preserve, protect, take, and manipulate. But we know resistance is futile. Our greatest regrets often come on the heels of trying to protect something that we soon after lose, trying to take something that we soon after realize we didn't need it. The things we put in the place of God will always disappoint us. The pressure to preserve and control will always drive us to self-destruction. We lose it in ourselves in the end and miss whatever God actually does. And our warped expectations keep us from our own idea of fulfillment, let alone from God's actual fulfillment of his promises. And here's the grand conclusion that blows our minds and should have us all repent and weep over how good God is to us. Caiaphas plus Judas equals the undeniable history of Jesus. He wasn't erased from history. He was exclaimed as a result. This shows just how sovereign our God is and how upside down his kingdom is and operates and takes what we think and makes it as he wills. The very enemies of Jesus, the very enemies of Jesus were the literal reasons he died on the cross, yet his death was still their gain. It was still for them if they would have believed. They plotted to kill him, but the plot twist was that God remained sovereign the entire time. Yet, that's the futility of resistance. It risks forfeiting everything, even your own existence. You'll remember Jesus wasn't crucified alone that day. Two other criminals were on either side of him. One mocked him just moments before he died, but the other was well aware that resisting God's will had gotten him there. Soon he would be gone and he would be forgotten because crucifixions were not meant to remember people with, but to erase people from the record books not to enshrine them. Yet in the moment, having heard Jesus pray and having heard Jesus ask for God to forgive those who had turned against him, that criminal, knowing he was in the presence of someone who truly didn't deserve to die, knowing that if there was a heaven, Jesus was indeed going there, knowing he was about to be erased from history, judged by his own resistance and rebellion against God, he made one simple final request that he thought would be off the record. He said, Jesus, remember me. I know they put you on this tree because they think they're going to erase you from history. I don't know who you are, but man, you seem pretty special. Caiaphas thinks it's funny that we're just going to die and be forgotten. But you're not going to be forgotten, Jesus. I know I'm about to die and I'm about to be buried and I'm going to probably go to hell and nobody's going to ever remember my name your name. Caiaphas is wrong. Nobody's ever going to forget you, Jesus.
So would you remember me when you get to your kingdom? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus offers better than remembrance. He offers redemption. That's a promise that's on the record. Take it from one who saw Jesus in his last earthly moments up close and personal. Through his own eyes, he received everlasting life. Take it from John who was there. Jesus is undeniably God. No one could stop him. And if we follow him, no one can stop us either. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for preserving this story. God, it's really special to talk about this because I know it was an attempt to erase Jesus from history. It was an attempt to try to make people forget who you were and try to put this story to an end. It was an attempt to try to say that Jesus wasn't anybody important and it was an attempt to try to push this off the scene. But God, you intervened. And God, this, this convicts me so much because I resist you so much. I, I've not tried to plot to kill somebody that you love, but Lord, I've resisted you so many times in so many ways. I have my own expectations, and then, Lord, I try to make it all reality, and I don't care what you want to do sometimes. But I'm no better than Caiaphas. I'm no better than Judas. I'm no better than these men that plot and plan and manipulate and take and resist. I'm no better than them. And yet, throughout all that, you work for our good. You work for my good. You died in my place. And nobody forgot who Jesus was. Everybody knows who Jesus is because these men thought they had control, and you took control. God, thank you for this story. I love preaching it. It's such a privilege. Thank you for remembering me. Thank you for the promise of being remembered forever. Lord, bless all these folks that have come out tonight. May your face shine upon them and may they understand that trusting you is the best choice they'll ever make. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.